श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाय Okay, that's, that's good, yeah. So good morning, everyone, and nice to be with you. We have been discussing about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu for some time now, and really all of our uh, discussions, <coughs> for the most part, have been <coughs> in glorification of him in arguments um, um, in support of the... Uh, position attributed to him, status attributed to him by his uh, followers, the Goswamis, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami, Acharyas, and so forth, and um, and these arguments were very much uh, kind of geared towards those who have some, um, I would say some familiarity with and some identification with Vedanta, with uh, uh, experiential spiritual spirituality, who believe in God, and so on and so forth. And we heard yesterday very uh, uh, the, the nice arguments, if you will, of uh, thoughtful arguments of uh, Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami for his time. Hmm? You have to understand that these arguments are compelling and interesting uh, to to us, but we are already inside of a of a. Uh, um, there were uh, a lot of things were already accepted by all of you hmm, that make them more readily uh, understandable and make them more more compelling. Hmm? You believe in God and the, the, the God is Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagwan. These titles, terms you've heard before, and so forth, and and so on. Um, um, so, it, it, my point is that during his time, it was a very, very powerful argument. The scripture, the sacred text, were something that educated people in the society would uh, quote, and uh, as they were able to quote and explain, then they would uh, establish their their premises, their positions, and, and, and so forth, in the society. This was not a fringe group. It was um, uh, um, out of the mainstream of the society. They were the mainstream of the society. Religious thinking, uh, people were the leaders of the society at the time of Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami. Hmm? And so his arguments were very, very um, sensible, very compelling, Given the standard of knowledge that was accepted at the time, sacred texts, the necess- necessity to support what you uh, think with reference to them, and so on, and he did so very uh, creatively, hmm? um, in one sense, but very ins- insightfully. As I said, uh, the arguments appear to be something that's so obvious when you hear them, but they had not been uh, raised previously. So a very penetrating insight into the the significance of the sacred text that, that uh, shed light on the position of Krishna as the um, 
the uh, fountainhead of all uh, manifestations of deity, of, of divinity, the very heart of divinity. <clears throat> and the distinction between uh, Bhagavan, Paramatma, and Bhagavan, and uh, by way of um, considering what they represent ontologically as, with, with regard to being, knowing, and loving, and so forth, and as ideals of particular paths that were also drawn from the sacred text, the yoga path and uh, the, the, the path of, of, of jnana, of knowledge, and, and bhakti, and, and so forth. So it all sounds good, and it is. Uh, but my point is, in one sense, that we, we live in a different world today, and we are not the mainstream of the society. And as much as some of my... Uh, Friends like to say that these will be the law books for the next 10,000 years. I like to say, when are we going to start that 10,000 years? Because they're not the law books uh, in, in today's world uh, by anybody's um, standard. You can't go to the court of law and say, Your Honor, the Bhagavad Gita says, <laughs> chapter 18, <laughs> uh, and get, get too far. As a side point, it's worth mentioning that this overused uh, statement of Prabhupada that my books will be the law books for the next 10,000 years is exactly that. It's very much overused. It's not uh, found anywhere in his recorded statements that have been um, archived by the archives, Bhaktivedanta archives, um, the... Uh, uh, members of which who oversee all that have been with us over the days but aren't with us here today. Um, uh, it's mentioned, I believe, in, in Satru Goswami's uh, biography of Prabhupada as an antidote that they were riding in the car in Los Angeles and something was said and Prabhupada said, yes, my books would be the law books in the next 10,000 years. That's so kind of a... Somebody said he said it and... Uh, somehow it's come into the like the mainstream of um, a large uh, institution of Gaudiya um, uh, thought and become like a centerpiece, it, almost to the extent that it displaces, unfortunately, what is actually very a very central um, uh, uh, emphasis of uh, Prabhupada, that being that um, any kind of outreach to, to, the, to the public or to, to uh, uh, the initiated uh, sect of, 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 of Gaudiya card-carrying members uh, is, is going to be um, something that is in consideration of time and place and circumstance. So you might explain it one way in one circumstance and time and a different way in another place and circumstance and time. And time changes, places change, circumstances change, and so forth. Therefore, the need for ongoing explanations that um, are relative to the time and place that the, that the teaching might remain or appear alive. Hmm? Alive by way of being explained in a way that takes into consideration what the current of thought in the world is today and what the arguments are and, uh, and so on and so forth. This is the business of any, 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 any acharya. Hmm? And Prabhupada was 
very much doing that himself, coming to the West for the first time with uh, uh, Vaishnavism, and uh, so he he preached in a in a particular way. Hmm? And anybody that has any experience at all of trying to explain Krishna consciousness to people uh, realizes that well, you know, I can only say this much to this person. They're not quite there yet. You know, I'm going to give a simpler answer here. Over here, I'll give a more complex answer. And whereas I might give in the simple answer, there is a more in-depth answer that could be given later. And anyone with has any little bit of experience trying to take this uh, ideology and then try to explain it to somebody asks, "What are those beads around your neck?" And you go, "Hmm. Well, what am I going to say now? Where do I begin?" And so forth. And so um, this is just the very the very uh, nature of of, uh, of of teaching or of, of, of preaching. One has to take the audience into consideration. When you sit down to write a book and you think, what are all the thoughts? What are the arguments that people will have? You know, And how can I address them? And of course, by the time the book's finished, there are other arguments that have come up, and so there's a need for another book. Hmm? Not to tell a different truth, but to same, take tell the same truth in a different way in response to different... Um, arguments and questions and so on and so forth. This is very central, I'm going to say, to uh, what is the will be the nature of any kind of outreach hmm, and sharing of, of the teaching. And Prabhupada emphasized this over and over and over again. Indeed, he was doing it, and those who couldn't entirely uh, appreciate that principle, some persons in India... Uh, some of his own God brothers were criticizing his adjustments for time and circumstance, not really understanding the difference between principles and details and how the details might be changed in different circumstances in order to deliver the principle and so forth. He was a living example of the need to do this and, and the fact that some people couldn't understand it and, and so forth, but the train would go on. He said that the dogs will bark and you know, the train will go on. Something like that. So the, I, when you take an, a, a, a kind of off-the-cuff remark of Prabhupada, like, yes, my books will be the law of books for the next 10,000 years, and then you enshrine that as a, a literal uh, truth with, uh, and then start to play out your own idea of the implications of that, like there's no need for any other books. These are the law of books for the next 10,000 years. And, so anybody that's written another book is suspect, and anybody that's given more, if the next guru gives more, he or she is definitely suspect. If they give less, they're okay. <laughs> they couldn't give the same amount, but if they give less than the previous acharya, then they're then they're all right, then they're humble, something like that. <laughs> so this is a very and this is a, this is a problem we find in the community that kind of emphasis. It's it's, it's a misunderstanding, really of what Prabhupada himself exemplified hmm? and his own uh, emphasis to displace and throw out the, the, the principle time, place, and circumstance will determine the nature of the outreach and, and, and so forth and then put this other item. These, these, this is it. Books have been written next 10,000. 10,000 years, I mean. <laughs> this country has only been around for a couple hundred years, I guess, maybe what, 250 years or something, I forget. And... Um, we were talking last night, we were just sitting up a little wee hour or so, and he was talking about history of, of uh, some of my uh, trials and tribulations with uh, outreach in, in, in over the years. 
and so forth. And um, anyway, anyway, yeah. So, um, so uh, uh, um, we find here Krishna's Kaviraj is giving new arguments, new time, new circumstances. He's taking the arguments of the Goswamis and then playing them out in a way that they weren't bold, so bold as to do in consideration of their own strategy. And like I said, it's a half a generation or so later, and he felt he could come out with more and so on and so forth. And his arguments were good at that time. And in those circumstances, they were powerful and they were compelling. And um, they would have, you know, if they had it, you know, TVs, let's bring Krishnadas on for a comment here, you know. <laughs> On, on what the Gita really means here, what were the furthest implications of that, you know, and the, Chaitan- the new Chaitanya Sampradaya, and, and so on. So that's not happening right now. We, we are a marginalized sect. Religion is becoming somewhat marginalized by, um, um, by what's thought of as empiric evidence that contradicts a lot of religious beliefs and has been shown to contradict uh, religious beliefs and retire them as superstitious and so on and so forth. There's, a, there's, a, there's always going to be a, a group of kind of believers and non-believers that are convinced on either end and there's the greater balance of people who don't know which way to turn, so to speak, and are never going to think it out as thoroughly as either of those two ends of the spectrum. And so if you want to have influence over the idea is to influence that group without them thinking, having to think thoroughly about it all, just to come on to your, your side. And the other end of the spectrum is, is marginalized. You're never going to get all the people to be thinking people. They don't necessarily have to be either. Hmm? It's a lot easier just to chant Hare Krishna. But uh, we have to think about it a little bit in order to be able to do that, I suppose. And so at any rate, um, uh, as good as the Krishnas' arguments were yesterday, we heard them, compelling and so forth. They're compelling to us inside of a, within a certain context. Now, if we want to turn around and go tell that to the people who aren't familiar with all these things, they might say, for, well, who says God exists in the first place anyway? You, whether you call him Brahman or Paramatma or, or whatnot and so on. So there ought to be a way, the thought is, um, of making the same arguments here. Hmm? Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam and the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is that Krishna. And in the context of that, that Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan are uh, particular manifestations of divinity. Hmm? Uh, two, the Brahman and the Paramatma derived from the uh, independent, uh, if you will, Bhagavan, being in existence, being aspects of a loving reality. Um, and so, I've been writing about these verses, as I mentioned, and so when I wrote about the things we talked about yesterday, I thought, as I'm speaking to you now, this is a, not a convincing argument. I know you were convinced yesterday, but I thought this is not at all a convincing argument in consideration of the current thought and so forth. So how you could make an argument to establish that uh, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, is Krishna in the current times would be something that, that Krishna's Kaviraj would be thinking about. Rupa Goswami would be thinking about. Prabhupada would be, would be thinking about and so forth. So, 
it's worth um, thinking about a little bit. Um, and so I want to go over some, just some thoughts along those lines, because you are all contemporary people living in the world, your associates at work or school or uh, some acquaintances and so forth don't embrace the same ideology as you. They might be curious about it, and, and it would be nice if you could reply to their interest when it, when it shows itself in a way that uh, was, um, was compelling, was, 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 was relevant, and, and, uh, and took into consideration arguments that they may be under the influence of that might make them less favorably disposed towards uh, these ideas. Hmm? Um, and that means to say the arguments that work for some of you who are a little older here when you were younger um, just to repeat those may not have the same effect in our time and our circumstances Prabhupada used to say for example you're not the body and it was like wow that's pretty far out Very, pretty compelling and interesting idea hmm? yeah um, you say my body so, who are you? And you go, yeah, that makes sense. So, I, I'm not... Well, that's a good argument. I mean, it is. Um, but there's a lot of arguments against that. <laughs> a lot of very sophisticated arguments against that idea. Hmm? Basic idea being that, uh, that, that, that consciousness is um, different from the brain. It's generally thought mind is consciousness. Hmm? And the idea that mind is different from the brain is an idea that's not very popular hmm? in educated uh, Western society. Hmm? And uh, in educated Eastern society today as well. It's just not a popular idea. There's a lot of arguments against that. Hmm? And, um, of course, in Vedanta, we distinguish between mind and and consciousness and brain. Brain is physical. Mind is, in our uh, school of thought, mind is a a subtle form of matter that mediates experience of matter uh, for consciousness. In other words, consciousness is is different altogether, categorically different from mind and body. And mind is the medium through which consciousness get some experience of, of the gross, uh, uh, gross matter. Hmm? So we're, we're, we're positing a third, third thing. Often the, the, when we speak of um, consciousness in the modern world, people are thinking of mind. Hmm? And then there's brain. And, then, and there's a lot, lot of uh, investigation into the, into the, into the brain. That's not talked about in any of these books of ours. <coughs> what is the brain and how it works and so forth. Very, you know, ne- ne- neurological investigation of the brain is very sophisticated and then just press something here and then you go crazy and over here <laughs> you become sane, here you become happy, here you become sad and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of correlation between mind states and brain uh, functioning and so forth. And... Uh, and so there's a, there's a very um, prominent group of thinkers in science and in philosophy and so forth that have concluded that, that brain, that, well, basically that consciousness is really um, 
part of the natural world. The natural world means the physical world, means the material world. These are materialistic, uh, this is a materialistic outlook. Now materialism is sometimes called physicalism or naturalism, hmm? as opposed to supernaturalism or non-physicalism or, or spiritualism as opposed to materialism. And there are many different shades of physicalism, uh, naturalism, materialism, and more or less these days, all of them are tr- making an effort to try to explain that consciousness is not causal, it has no um, uh, efficacy, it's not a force in the world that, that does anything, and, uh, and that the I that's in there, the self, that me, is, is, isn't really anything substantial as it might feel to you to be. Hmm? I'm just going over this very, you know, in a very broad um, sense. So this is the prominent, prom- prominent thinking, of course, and then there's a lot of anti-religious propaganda based on, for example, the uh, um, evidence for Darwinian evolution and, and, and so forth. Um, so, um, so how do we? How, where do we go with all? This? How are we going to get to Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam in a compelling way? So I think that that this is uh, this is um, um, the best route to go with this is to start with consciousness, make an argument for the existence of God and ultimately the existence of Krishna, based on consciousness, of an argument from from consciousness. And, and so we begin the argument by way of um, asserting that consciousness is not reducible to matter. Hmm? Now, we're just going to talk about it first from a logical point of view. Hmm? That consciousness, where we have feeling, perceptions, um, that, that gives us a sense of I, hmm? that there's somebody in there, Hmm? Uh, there was a fellow named what was his name? I can't forget. I can't remember. <laughs> Some years ago, I wrote a book called "The Ghost in the Machine," and he was, you know, for for centuries we've been burdened by this idea that the religious idea that it's a ghost inside the machine of the body, called the soul or whatever, but it, it's just not really there. There's there's nothing to that, you know. And they were uh, real, I think, as his name was was kind of unreal, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that this is something like that. Anyway, uh, um, uh, so a lot of built, some have built on that argument and, and tried to develop it and, and, uh, and so forth. Hmm? And it's the dominant kind of thinking, as I say, but, but ba- this is based, that kind of thing is based on, thought to be based on empirical evidence. Hmm? Now, we we'll leave that aside, and we just talk reasonably. We all, all of us, human beings, we all sense that there is a self, and it's us, and this subjective experience that I exist, and my existence is like this, is a private experience that it's, that, that's not anybody else's experience. I can try to talk to you about it, so but there's this private subjective experience that I exist in a particular way and am a certain thing and so on and so forth that we all have and pride and 
uh, in and uh, 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 identified with and, and so forth. Hmm? And we all act as if consciousness is causal, as if, for example, I have a conscious thought, I should do this, and then my body does it. I think I should go to the store, so then my body carries out the act. Hmm? And in so many ways, things are caused from up to down, so to speak. Hmm? Um, that's how we function. Hmm? All human beings intuitively sense that um, they're, they exist, hmm? they have a meaningful existence, and we act as if we have a meaningful existence, and that there are values and so forth, and... Uh, and so on. Um, now, uh, the basic point here is that to philosophize uh, to the contrary is very um, counterintuitive. Hmm? And this will be admitted in intellectual circles that do so. We know it's very counterintuitive, but after all, our intu intuitions are not always right. Hmm? You and I, three of us, could be driving down the street and <coughs> Our drivers say, which way do I turn your left or right? And you could say, I think it's left. And, well, I think it's right, and it might be straight. Hmm? We have plenty of experience that our intuitions are wrong. We usually think, we usually tend to forget about those times and only remember the times that our intuitions were right, and we trust in intuition, our own. Hmm? Um, so the fact is that, they're, that, that it's not reliable. But... Then again, when there is a unit, an intuition that many people have, hmm, or to speak of one that all people have, then it has a little more um, credibility. It's a little harder to think of overturning that. Not only do they have a particular intuition, like I'm speaking, which is universal in human society, but they act accordingly, even, and the point is, even if they philosophize otherwise. Hmm? And actions speak louder than words. There's a philosopher, psychologist, I think she is, really, and philosopher named Susan Blackmore, who's written a number of books on consciousness. And um, in, in, in one of her books, she makes the point that, she raises the point that 90% of the people are dualists. In this context, dualism means there's a difference between consciousness and matter, between mind and brain. 90% of the people are dualists. Only about 10% of the people are monists, and, and, and this means, in this context, means everything is matter. There's nothing outside of matter. Hmm? Uh, but the 10% are right, of course, and 90% of people are wrong. And so, uh, and she's, of course, in the in 10%. And but my, my, um, and she goes on to, you know, give her reasoning and so forth. But my reply to that basically is, Susan, uh, <laughs> I disagree with you. A hundred percent of the people are dualists, hmm? because actions speak louder than words. Hmm? Hmm? Yeah. Uh, so we all function in everyday life practically as if there's a difference between the brain and the mind. And for that matter, it's very easy to think of the brain being different from the mind. Hmm? Um, it's very difficult to think of the brain being non-different from the mind because it's difficult to talk about something. If A and B are the same, it's difficult to talk about them being different. 
it's practically impossible. But we can very easily talk about a difference between consciousness and, 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 and matter, between mind and brain. It's very easy to do so. Hmm? In fact, it's very easy to conceive of brains that could function without consciousness, at least without, the, without perception, without feeling. Hmm? We have computers that are very sophisticated and they perform various functions, and our brains are very, very sophisticated computers, and many of the perform functions that we think we perform are actually just done by the brain. Hmm? Like the Gita says, Prakriti Kriyamanani Gunai Karmani Sarvasa, Ahankara Vimudatma, Kartaha You think you're the doer, but it's actually being carried out by material nature. Hmm? So to use this, extend this, we agree with uh, people in the scientific and philosophical uh, community that say that, that uh, here's an example, this function is really being performed by the brain, hmm? but you think that you're performing it. Hmm? We could recreate this function in a machine, even. Hmm? So uh, without going into detail of neurology and so what the Gita is saying, most of the things are being carried out by the modes of nature, and the modes of nature are operative both physically and psychically. These are the two dimensions of our material sense of self, the psychic dimension, the subtle mind, and then the gross dimension, physical body. You follow me? Mm -hmm. So we say the same thing in the Gita. Hmm? Uh, we don't say that all things are carried out only by material nature. We say that, that the self is, is actually a doer also, hmm? and it initiates action, if you will, uh, of material nature, animates the world, and the world pretty much takes over and it's, it's functioning like, like a machine. Hmm? Uh, but anyway, my point was that it, it's, it's conceivable to have a machine without consciousness. You could have a zombie machine that was a replica of yourself that did practically everything you did but didn't care about, didn't think about, didn't feel about it. Hmm? Uh, so it's possible to think of a brain functioning without consciousness. Hmm? Um, and uh, it's possible to think of a brain brain dying hmm? uh, and not living, not somehow living on when it breaks down. It's very easy to think like that. It's difficult to think of consciousness not existing. Consciousness is existence, and we've always experienced that we exist. We have no reason, in one sense, to think that we won't at some point. It's easy, anyway, my point is to think there's a difference between consciousness and matter. It's difficult to think that they're the same. And the burden of proof is on those who want to say there's an identity between brain and, and mind. They're not different. It's only an illusion to think they're different. Something like the burden of proof really lies with such persons who make such a non-commonsensical uh, position um, take such a non-commonsensical uh, <laughs> position. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, obviously, well, there are other nuanced ways of talking about that mind is a, kind of a little different than the brain, but it has its genesis in brain or in matter and, and so on and so forth, because the hard idea that they're one and the same is, which I kind of all started out, kind of the mind-brain arguments that they're one and the same, it's kind of like not working. Hmm? And so, you know, we got to stretch it a little bit. What's been happening for decades as consciousness has begun to be talked about and thought about and explored and so forth is that the, the idea of materialism has just been kind of been stretching 
expanding itself to try to fit consciousness inside hmm, of it. Hmm. It's not fitting very well. It's a problem. There are many, many, many theories as to the material, if you will, or physical nature, natural nature of consciousness that do not satisfy anyone but the person that came up with the theory. Hmm? And maybe a few others who like his book, but not his contemporaries who have other theories and find all the fault with that. And, and if you want to find fault with any of the particular theories, you don't have to go to the theistic side. Just go to the contemporaries in the other fields and see how they critique one another's theories and how they fall short for them. Hmm? So um, I'm making a, 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 a case kind of briefly in a very crude way for the logic of um, consciousness being different uh, from matter. Consciousness is very, as I often say, very difficult to define, hmm? to explain. And um, it's very kind of elusive. Hmm? That makes it seem more ethereal, but from another point of view, it makes it that the reason it's so hard to define and grasp is because it's not like anything else. There's, there's, it's difficult to, 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 to describe it and define it by way of comparing it to something because it's, it's entirely different from everything. Things are experienced and consciousness is experience it's, it, it, itself. Hmm? It's a subjective experiencing um, reality. Hmm? Um, to for for experience to turn into non-experience is very in, um, inconceivable. For non-experience to turn into experience, these are opposites. They're very, very different hmm? in, in, in every way. So my point is that there's, there's a lot of credibility for the other. The other there's a difference between consciousness and matter. The fact that it's not like anything it's because it's, it's something unto itself. The more it's something unto itself, it's not like anything, means it's not matter. It's not, you can't reduce it to matter. Hmm? If, if you can establish by reason that it's not reducible to matter, then by reason you can say, therefore, it's eternal. Hmm? It's not constrained, that means by time and space, which all material things are. It's not governed by those laws that govern matter. Hmm? It's different from matter. So a whole room of possibilities uh, surfaces by this. And you can see how this would turn the scientific community like upside down. Like, well, oh my God, you know, we are starting all over here from nothing. But in a sense, this is what's been happening for decades. Because for a long time, what happened after Christianity kind of gave birth to modern science, and they thought that by science we you know, proved the glory of God once and for all, and it turned out to be the you know, big nemesis for Christianity. Um, uh, uh, there is something called the classical physics worldview, like Newtonian physics and so forth. The, the world was a mach is a machine, hmm? and they located all the major forces of of, of nature and and so forth. And with the hands of technology, we took those and manipulated those and created various things and whatnot that were supposed to improve and in some respects did improve our lives and, and all. So with all of this, there's a very strong sense hmm, that the world is, a, is closed causally, that all the causes of things that happen in the world 
are all inside the world of matter. Hmm? We see how this force works and that force works and so on and so forth. And so we know the causes. We don't know the cause of all causes, but we know anyway. And so the, the, if there's something from outside of this that causes it, hmm? well, we don't, we don't see any room for that. We don't need anything like that. And if there was, well, we ought to be able to measure it anyway and, and so forth. So that the idea that God... Christian idea that God was outside of the world and created the world, sometimes weighed in, you know, and caused something to happen, like, I'm really upset with you people, I'm sending a hurricane to New York, <laughs> you know, and people would think like that in the past, oh, there was an earthquake, it must be God just mad at us, you know, beat on the drums or something, you know, and sacrifice a human, you know, <laughs> give them to the fire or something like that, chant a mantra, you know. And so then they would say, well, actually, the cause of the earthquake was actually this, and this, uh, this is a seismic region, and this happened here, and that happened, so on and so forth. Uh, and so we just, you know, did away with this other idea and satisfactorily explained the cause um, uh, and, and, and so forth. And we freed a lot of people also by doing it from these repressive ideas that I was bad, therefore there was an earthquake, and... and there is no bad, is the implication. There is no good, ultimately. There is no meaning. I don't know it gets empty for you when you go along these lines, but some people are you know, identifying with that. It's a very empty kind of a outlook. But, so what happened is a lot of Christian thinkers started to become deists. Deism is a kind of an idea that there's a God that set it all up and then didn't get involved from then on. It's all set up, it all works perfectly, and he's not involved. Hmm? Um, and, and agnostic ideas and atheistic ideas have come and developed more and more and so forth, and they, they, they are probably in the majority amongst the educated uh, people in the scientific community. Hmm? And so there's this idea of, of causal closure. Hmm? And the prob one of the big problems for people who are really tuned into like how the world works materially, scientifically, and so forth is, well, you know, if there's something called consciousness causal, where is it? How does it, how we, how we can't measure it, and so forth, so why should we believe in it? Hmm? This is the argument on that side, that they, they're pressed to explain consciousness, if at all, away from being the more that we sense it is and this, this uh, kind of religious idea about it and so forth, uh, because we can't really see it, we can't measure it. Uh, meanwhile, we've measured the other forces and so forth, so we, we just, we, we, there's, there's no room for that. So there's a, therefore, as I've said before, one of the biggest unanswered questions from modern science, they have a list of them, unanswered questions they're trying to tick off. One of the biggest ones right at the top of the list is, what is the biological nature of consciousness? What is the biological makeup of consciousness? We don't know. And so you can see there's a problem with the question. The question should be, is there a biological makeup to consciousness? Not, what is the biological makeup of consciousness? Hmm? That's a a prejudice, a bias, uh, bias to begin with. There's a bias. There's a certain paradigm 
way of thinking about things that works on some pragmatic level for people, answers a lot of questions, and they're invested in that. Famous uh, philosopher of science and uh, named Thomas Kuhn, you may be familiar with, wrote a book uh, quite some few years ago that 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 shed light on how people in the scientific community are people, hmm? are humans, and so they have biases, and how difficult it is to change paradigms. What what's involved when you find out that actually the Earth is moving around the Sun rather than the sun and every other planet moving around the earth, that was like earth shaking. Hmm? Yeah, you know, they wanted to, I think the Catholic Church wanted to, wanted to, wanted to um, um, how do you say, um, execute, uh, not only excommunicate, but execute uh, Copernicus for, you know, because it, it, they, their interpretation of the Bible was that everything was moving around the earth. So this seemed to be a blasphemy of the Bible, it's a, uh, and so on. So uh, they wanted to execute him. Um, eventually, of course, his ideas prevailed. Hmm? This was a huge shift, but it took a long time for all that to happen and for people to actually embrace it and change. And it, it was a huge change in the thinking of the people, and it sent the world in a very, very different uh, direction from where it had gone, had been going and what possibilities were there, and so forth. And, and God was kind of like pushed to the side a little bit here. Or, you know, and then he had to have new interpretations of the Bible to keep the thing current, and, and so forth. So, uh, similarly in modern society, there's has been a shift, as you probably know, from this Newtonian view, classical physics, to quantum physics, quantum mechanics, who nobody understands. Hmm? And one of the reasons they don't understand it is because it just doesn't make any sense, a lot of sense, from a classical point of view. Actually, it incorporates all the truths found in classical physics, but it says something more. And one of the things it says, it's, it's, it's very decidedly in its most um, um, kind of authentic and interpretation uh, to be sub subjective in nature. Um, Whereas classical physics is very objective in nature, to the point where consciousness what didn't even need to be discussed. Hmm? What I mean by that is in quantum mechanics, in quantum physics, it's become apparent that we don't really study the nature of nature. What we study is the nature of human experience of nature. So experience is subjective. Hmm? It's subjective. So the subjective, there's a subjective observer hmm, whose observations of nature we are examining. We're not getting to nature itself in its pristine state and so forth. So what's happened there, it means the consciousness has come into the view where in classical physics it didn't even need it, you know, but there was no place for it. Now there's a place for it, but there's a resistance to what place it should have and, and how far this quantum thing plays out on what level, maybe only on a microcosmic atomic level, but not on a macrocosmic level and so forth. And, um, but there are some strong proponents of the um, purest kind of interpretations of quantum theory that, that um, dismiss the uh, arguments that kind of, kind of hold off the 
all the implications of the quantum uh, perspective hmm? because it's a huge paradigm kind of shift. And when we look at the mind-brain issue from a quantum perspective, um, well, there are some very interesting and thoughtful um, uh, uh, ideas that have come to the fore, some of which give room for a empirically based observational observation of nature and whatnot, uh, theories that give room for consciousness to be independent of, of, uh, of, of, of brain, of mind, and so forth. So while there's a, my point here, while there's a strong logic for the irreducible nature of consciousness, someone might say, well, okay, but if there's empirical evidence to the contrary, then I guess your logic is, is not very good. But the point is, there's not. Hmm? There's not. There are many theories that consciousness is matter that just fail. They fail. Hmm? And there are theories that consciousness is not matter that are equally scientifically, if you will, credible, but they don't get as much room, much air time. Hmm? They're kind of like, well, this is a, that's a different, you know, that's like... Let's just keep going the way we're going here. We'll figure it out in due course, and we'll demonstrate the, that um, that that uh, consciousness is is really matter, which is a, again a very logic, a very very backward idea. Hmm? It's a very backward idea it, it, because it's it's like saying to say that consciousness is not causal, and consciousness is not um, foundational. Is like saying I'm dead. You can say I'm dead, but it has no real meaning. Hmm? Because how could you be dead and say I'm dead, right? Hmm? So how can you say consciousness is not foundational when it's consciousness that is required to say that? Hmm? It's at the root of, 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 of everything. It's very, very difficult, impossible to get away from that. Hmm? And so that's what I mean, again, by saying one thing but acting you know, very differently. Everyone acts as if, lives as if consciousness is causal, as if there's somebody in there and it's me and I have, the value, I have values. And, and so to philosophize that that's not accurately happening and so forth is a kind of a talk that nobody can walk, hmm? which brings it into question because actions speak louder than words. And so we can go on like this forever with lots and lots of arguments as to the irreducible nature of consciousness from a point of view of logic. Hmm? And people, there are people in the scientific and philosophical and atheistic community that are, have enough integrity to say, whatever it is, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty different. Um, and it, it may not be what some people think it is, but to talk about reducing it to matter is very, very difficult to do. They admit that. There's a shift. Hmm? Some, you know, it's if you really look at the argument, it's it's very difficult to to logically present that. And then then there's no empiric evidence to support it. There are theories and so forth, hmm? but as I said, they don't even satisfy other contemporaries in the field. So very briefly, the idea is that there's a very strong logical argument for consciousness being irreducible. There's no scientific evidence that it's not reducible, or that it is reducible to matter. Hmm? There are scientific theories, and there are also scientific theories that it's not reducible. 
and they're equally credible. Hmm? So, all right, be, why not embrace a theory then, scientifically, it's a theory, or hypothesis, I should say, that, that is supportive of what we intuitively sense and which uh, supports the raw kind of logic hmm, of the irreducible nature of consciousness. Why, why resist that? So there are reasons. <laughs> there's a bias. There's an investment uh, of thinking and intellectual integrity and, uh, and other things also, things type things that are produced from uh, kind of a materialistic in, 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 in investment in life. There, there are psychological reasons and biases because I grew up in a religion and they told me how to do all these things and it ruined my life and made me a suppressed, you know, unbalanced guy that I am and I'm really against religion, you know, kind of idea. And all this is, a, all that, of course, is just due to exposure to fundamentalist forms of religion that fall short. And it could be in Hare Krishna fundamentalist uh, exposure too and think, I want nothing to do with this religion. It's like, you know, uh, it just messed up my life, you know. Uh, my parents told me to do all these things. They did the opposite, you know, and, and so on. So, um, so there are reasons hmm, that people resist this kind of logic and, and, and mar marginalize even scientific evidence that would be supportive, not proving, but supportive. But there's no proof uh, to the to the to the to the opposite that consciousness is reducible to matter. So. The point is this, we can make a good case logically and scientifically f for the idea that consciousness is irreducible to matter hmm? and have good intellectual standing, in other words, intellectual integrity. Our faith is one thing. We want to support our faith with intellectual, we want to harmonize our heart with our head. Hmm? And so we are going to harmonize our faith with our head and our head is going to then, you know, talk to somebody else. All these arguments, that's what you do. That's how, that's how you came to Krishna consciousness. You had certain arguments and thoughts and feelings and somebody told you about Krishna consciousness and so then you had to harmonize your head and your heart and, and basically you went in and you accepted it and so forth. So this is kind of an ongoing affair, if you will, to, especially for the advancing devotee. Hmm? To make actually one's faith strong by taking this, the metal of one's faith and putting it in the fire like you would with steel just to the point it's about to melt and then pull it out and it gets stronger and put it in again pull it out hmm? so to study the scripture find the arguments there and then what's really being said oh you mean it's not like that and we're finding these things out as we keep in good association it doesn't work like that uh, I didn't fall from Vaikuntha. Huh. I thought I felt them. Okay, well, that's different. Um, or or whatever, whatever it is. I thought I'd become a, a stone in Vrindavan. Yeah. Well, that was all, but the, yeah, the goal. That's not. Or um, I thought it was just Chan to be happy. It's, it seems like it's Chan to be unhappy half the time, too. It's not. It's, it's not. It's not. I thought I would just go out on Sankirtan and everybody would melt, and so would I. And, People threw things at me instead, <laughs> and I had to, you know, they insulted me and and so forth. So, um, 
we're finding out what, what bhakti is, what, you know, Prabhupada said it here, and then we'll be able to go back to the book that he got his reference from, you know, Rupa Goswami's book, and the commentary there, and we say, oh, this is what he was really saying and meaning, and this is, if you play it out, and, this, and it's different than maybe what I thought it was. So we need good association for all this, and we refine our understanding of what it is we're doing, we have a greater capacity to do it, and get the desired result, and so forth. So this is all kind of a harmonizing the head and the heart, even with regard to our own texts and so forth, and then there's the world, which is very difficult to get away from. Hmm? You know, you just look for one thing on the internet in relation to your devotional service, and you get ads for something else, and uh, you know, and, and, and you're being bombarded with all kinds of uh, propaganda and information. And it's just, just, just over, overwhelming. And uh, you know, there was a time in in this uh, country. When in, in Prabhupada's mission, I didn't know who the president was. Pretty bad, I guess. No, but you know, it didn't stop me from eating, sleeping, and carrying on with Krishna consciousness and so forth. I'm not saying that's a good idea necessarily. Probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> it probably doesn't matter that much who, who it is, but but um, but it's my point. I'm bringing up here is it's very difficult to do that now. It's very difficult not to know who won the Super Bowl, even practically, if you have no interest in football. You know, uh, you know, it's just just it's everywhere. The information is just everywhere. Hmm? And so, how to integrate that information with our faith, and so, so that we could make a meaningful presentation to the public, for, on the one hand, and on the other hand, how to just go forward with our faith given information that doesn't seem to um, be supported by our faith. Hmm? And then so it's a question of going deeper and having, seeing deeper implications. What, what are principles here? What's essential? What's you know, non-essential? And uh, so on and so forth. So this is the kind of thing we have to, have to do. Hmm? And so, anyway, from a logical point of view, hmm? There's very strong ground to stand on as to the irreducible nature of consciousness. And that's a big word. So irreducible means it's not matter, which means it's not confined by time and space. It's not biological. What is the biological makeup of consciousness? Better question, is there a biological question of, uh, 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 makeup to consciousness? Answer, no. Hmm? Um, another way to, to think about that is, well, let's take Darwinian evolution. Someone says, well, Swami, uh, what's your opinion about evolution? So, um, be honest with you, I'm not going to say, um, mm, they are saying we are coming from monkeys, therefore they are monkeys. Uh, we say different, you know, some probably would make statements like that. They were great for us at the time. Hmm? But I wouldn't, I wouldn't reply like that because I know they wouldn't be great for, you know, for the present time. Hmm? I would say something like, well, obviously, some kind of evolution is going on. I'm not really a student of biology, but um, uh, but um, uh, my concern is, as a Vedantin, is and as spiritual persons with the nature of consciousness, and and biology, bi bi Darwinian evolution has really no uh, no place for consciousness. It has no meaning, hmm? as far as. Uh, I mean, how important consciousness is to us, it's pretty important, right? We're having this conversation because of it. 
And the biological idea in, in Darwinian evolution is that things evolve because there is a necessity for them in order for the survival of the species. Hmm? So if consciousness was to evolve biologically, hmm, it would need to be a pretty important thing hmm, for the preservation of the species and its furthering. It actually has nothing to do with it. <laughs> It doesn't fit in hmm, to, to, to Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. Hmm? Why you should need to feel things and then start to philosophize and think, I don't know, you know maybe I don't exist. Someone might start to think, <laughs> is that going to help you survive as a species? Or that I should be kind to other people and so forth, rather than, you know, there's only so much out there. Get it while you can. To kind of, you know, to, to, it's, it's very all the things that consciousness does, it's not, it doesn't appear to be an advantage psych, uh, biologically. And there's very, 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 I'm just talking about it very briefly, there's very, very strong arguments for this. It's very difficult to find a meaningful place for it hmm, in Darwinian evolution. So I would say it's not, yeah, there's, there's no evidence at all that consciousness is biological. Hmm? And I'm interested in consciousness, so let's talk about that. Hmm? Some kind of evolution is going on, and, and I'm not an expert in, in, in all of that. Um, but at two ends of the spectrum, it fails as, a, as an answer to everything, so to speak, a way to answer everything. How chemicals turned into biology, that's not explained. Hmm? It, doesn't, it doesn't, Darwinian evolution doesn't deal with that. And how consciousness on the other end comes out, hmm? self-awareness, I mean, in this sense, by consciousness that we have in human society, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, you know, a, there's a hole on either end there. Uh, so it has some place to, to explain some things um, about the natural world, but uh, it, has no, it has no place for consciousness. Hmm? And consciousness is central to everything we do and all the meaning that we posit and, and, um, and uh, even the whole theory of evolution. It's coming from consciousness if you will. So, um, so that consciousness is irreducible to matter is a huge idea. It's basically what Prabhupada means when he says, you're not the body. Hmm? All the implications of it. So there's a way to talk about it, I want to say, that's, you know, that's saying the same thing, but it's in consideration of all the current thought and so forth. And uh, so, we, we logically and scientifically, there's no su real support for it, and there's much as there's some support theoretically, there's support theoretically for consciousness being irreducible. So then where are we left after this? Then I would say in our argument, we're trying to, remember, establish that Krishna is the supreme personality of God here. <laughs> so uh, we've been kind of on the lower rungs of the uh, discussion. So then I would say, where do we go from there? Hmm? Well, there's a class of people called mystics in different religious traditions. They're different than the religious people, the fundamentalists, and there's two, two, two sections to religion. That religious, there's the religious orientation and there's the spiritual experiential orientation. The religious orientation wants, it pursues religious experience short of effacing the ego. It has nothing to do with effacing the ego. It has to do with making my ego a little nicer, a kinder person, uh, 
a happier one, a more fulfilled one, a more, having a more bountiful life, um, uh, and so on. It has, it, it's not, in fact, the idea of effacing the ego is, is very unfriendly in, in, in such circles. Hmm? Um, the idea, if we were to say that Christ was a mystic, we would be like blasphemy in, in uh, some of the Southern Baptist uh, churches here in North Carolina, hmm? for example. Um, so there are experiences you can get, you know, you could go to church and feel better and find good friends and your life starts to work and, and materially and so on and so forth. Actually, you face the ego, Hmm? To kill the, the, the ego, that I, based on our sense of my and so forth. Some religious orientations don't even talk about that, aren't interested in that, would call that uh, heresy. Hmm? And that's the larger group. Hmm? Um, and it, 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 it's there in Islam, it's there in the, all the Abrahamic religions. It's not, it can't quite fit into Hinduism. Because in Hinduism, at its core, there's always this idea, there's the Atma, and there's a very clear idea in Hinduism, there's a difference between, well, consciousness is irreducible to matter. There's a real clear idea. If you look into Christianity, what is the soul? You got a dozen different theories what the soul is. There used to be two, a Platonic theory and an Aristotelian theory. The Thomists, following St. Thomas, had an Aristotelian kind of view of the soul, which is kind of mixed up with matter. And Plato had a more of a Eastern Vedantic idea that, that the soul was, 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 was different from, from matter and consciousness. And there's a whole bunch of in-between ones these days. Hmm? Uh, you know, so the, but in Vedanta, Gita says, of course, this, this idea that, 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 this, that con- basically says the idea that consciousness is irreducible, that is a sattvic understanding. Of the soul, and there's a Rajasic understanding, there's a Tamasic understanding. Hmm? So, because this is a strong emphasis in Hinduism, however fundamentalist Hinduism can get, and it can get pretty fundamentalist and pretty bad, hmm? still it has within it a theoretical idea that there's an Atma, and that that you would play it out that consciousness is irreducible. Hmm? It's not reducible to matter. Hmm? Um, And the more these various religious traditions start to move towards an ego-effacing orientation, the more they start to sound like Hinduism. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. The more they start to sound, and then they, they, you get these Sufis in Islam who are vegetarians, and they're, it's kind of a mix of Advaita Vedanta and Islam, and uh, the, the, the uh, same thing with in, in, in Christianity. Also, there's more. They start to find more common ground. India and Hinduism has always been um, emphasizing experiential spirituality in the here and now is the ideal. Hmm? It has other benefits, uh, you know, religious benefits, um, get a good son, get a good daughter, get a good husband, wife, and do this ritual and that and so forth. But um, uh, it it has a very strong emphasis on this idea that uh, there's a difference between Consciousness and matter. Hmm? Among the mystics, then, in the different religious traditions, hmm? they speak about their experience 
of consciousness being irreducible to matter in ways that while different to some extent, there is so much common ground. Hmm? All of that involves effacing this conventional ego, I'm, that I'm American, that I'm a man, that I'm a woman, eradicating that. Hmm? And experiencing that I'm a unit of experience. And then what that's about, there may be some differences, but they have this very strong common ground. They experience I'm eternal. Hmm? I've always been, I always will be. I'm a unit of being. Basically, they, they experience I'm a unit of being, knowing, and loving. That's what they experience. Hmm? And if you study the different traditions, mystics, they're, they're all saying this. And in Sanskrit, the Hindus have said it, the Atma is Satchit Ananda. Hmm? Now, this Satchit Ananda, being, knowing, and loving, it's a unit, consciousness is a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Hmm? Now, we talked the other day about being, knowing, and loving, and we very easily concluded that, that loving is, is what makes... Uh, what's, what's, what's worth knowing and, 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 and what's worth uh, living for. Hmm? That, that, that being and knowing are uh, necessary constituents of loving. Hmm? And, that, uh, and it's very easy to speak to human society about uh, the pursuit of love and uh, hmm? uh, everyone's doing it. Hmm? It's basically what's, what's making the world go round. So, the mystics say that the self is a unit of being, knowing, and loving. Hmm? And these people are credible. We had logic for the irreducible nature of consciousness. We had scientific support or lack of support that, it's not irre that it is irreducible for that theory. And then we have these mystics. And we can't prove what the ex mystics experience. When the mystic says, I experience that I'm eternal, I don't die, um, and that I'm God, or, you know, some truth to that idea, like, you know, I'm consciousness, God is consciousness, the being idea. I'm Brahman, you know, I'm one with Brahman. I'm, I'm identified with the whole ground of being, and I, and I, I, I care for everybody, and I'm content, I live in a cave here, I have content. I, I don't need anything, I don't want anything. My only, only want is that other people would be happy. Hmm. I'm so happy. Hmm. Uh, that, uh, th these kind of people. Uh, they, we cannot verify what they say they experience. We can't like get inside there. Hmm. It's a subjective experience. But we can't dismiss it either. It's very powerful. It's very compelling. Hmm. These people are, of course, marginalized in society. There aren't very many of them hmm? in the first place. And uh, a lot of them aren't in the popular you know, discourse. We in Gaudiya Vaishnavism tend to be in the popular discourse and, and uh, doing some kind of, uh, well, just you know, talking about our experience. It's, it's, it's so much fun that uh, this is kind of the nature of bhakti to uh, uh, shravanam and kirtanam and so forth. So anyway... There, we cannot verify that they, what they say, they experience, they experience. But what we can see is what they actually do as a result of what their experience is. We find that they, they're basically saying there's a difference between consciousness and matter. And what I've done 
is isolated my self-consciousness from matter. I've turned away from the world hmm, and the identity that everyone has formed on the basis of identifying with things and so forth. I've killed that ego. It doesn't exist anymore. I've died for all intents and purposes to what you know to be life. Hmm? And I'm still living. And I'm standing on a very different ground. And it's a very loving, compassionate ground. I don't take from anybody. Hmm? And uh, so this is a very desirable person. He has universal compassion hmm? for all beings. And it's not just, you know, talk. It, it, it actually feels like that. He, he sees the suffering of others. She sees the sufferings of others as if they are her own. And so these are remarkable uh, sadhus, uh, remarkable people. Hmm? So it's, 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 it's very difficult to dismiss them, even if you don't believe that what they experience is true, that they're eternal. In the here and now, the result of their experience is very desirable. Hmm? So it's, it, it's, it's, it's compelling enough to want to go there. And if, even if you think, well, they're experiencing some aspect of consciousness, which is ultimately reducible to matter, Hmm? is matter let's ex let's let's let's, try to, let's not try to reduce matter consciousness to matter let's just expand matter hmm? and make it more inclusive <laughs> to include what matter is uh, we'll call it subtle matter okay we'll go that far and we'll say there are some subtle laws that govern matter that that, that subtle matter we don't know about yet and you know, we'll, we'll we'll get to them and this kind of thing go, go, goes on hmm? but but it's a very profound experience that they have of of the possibilities of human consciousness, and what are those? What what is that possibility? They could become really fully human in a sense, uh, as much as human is supposed to be reasonable and therefore, you know, kind and uh, doing voluntary acts and uh, uh, loving and, and so forth. This is kind of like what characterizes humanity in many respects in comparison to other less complex forms of life. Hmm? And so that arguably they have reached the pinnacle of what it means to be human, even if at death it's over. Hmm? They've arguably reached what all that you could be as a human. Hmm? If every human was like that, all the problems would be solved. Hmm? And so, therefore, as I say, it has credibility. It's compelling. As long as you bring the mystic experience in, in, into the picture, hmm? it's, uh, it, it has to be part of the discussion. We're making an argument for God from consciousness. So we take, if, we, if we take the experience of the, of the mystics seriously, as we should, hmm? Hmm? then they say that consciousness is the unit of being, knowing, and loving, and... And in theistic mysticism, hmm, then we find that the loving is the most important um, element, if you will. Hmm? And in order for their, that loving to be um, fulfilled, which is the purpose, being exists and knows for loving. Hmm? in order to pursue all that it consciousness can be, all that it can be, logically there has to be a significant consciousness other that it could repose its loving capacity in. Hmm? 
Because if it's, again, if it just loves to be, that's not the full idea of loving. Loving will be graded on a scale of reciprocation. If there's no one to reciprocate with, it's kind of a very abstract idea of love. If we, if we want the full face of love, if we're living to love as a unit of consciousness, then there must be a significant other that we can, because love is reciprocal. Hmm? Hmm? We could, consciousness could just be, but then its, its loving capacity aspect would be, would be uh, minimal, so to speak. Hmm? So, we go along these lines and we, 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 we come to, we have to find a significant consciousness other that is preoccupied with the loving aspect hmm? of the three, being, knowing, and loving. And the candidate for that, that is most... Uh, uh, suitable that would be unanimously elected would be the the Krishna candidate. I mean, he is depicted by the mystics and experienced as only loving, only playing. Hmm? We've already been through this. Brahman is everywhere; he can't even move. Hmm? Paramatma is all knowing, and uh, that's boring. And Krishna is is then that feature of the Godhead that is playing. Hmm? And playing hard, and then the play is love, and the love is under the influence of this. So that's how he's experienced. Hmm? And so, if consciousness is not reducible to matter, and we, we kind of got that far, then then we have an opening that that those people who are experiencing that, we should listen to them. We should talk to them. They are credible. Hmm? Hmm? And this is what they say. That the self is a, is a unit of being, knowing, and loving. And then we analyze what, what, how they work together as we went through the other day and so forth. And then we find a necessity hmm, for an object of love that is the, is the perfect object of love for a manifestation in, within consciousness, not a significant other that's made out of matter. We're in the world of consciousness now. Another has to come into view there in order for my loving to be fulfilled. And it cannot be reverential love either. It cannot be. That's not the full face of love. Hmm? Uh, really, er eroticism is the full face of love in a sense. So we have to find a transcendental uh, cupid. Hmm? It's got to be out there. Some, there's a logical, I want to say, Necessity for that, if I indeed am a unit of being, loving, and knowing, loving, and loving is the predominant aspect of my existence, what I exist for. Hmm? To be fulfilled as an entity, I have to come in touch. I, there has to be another significant other and has to be all about love. And of course, then uh, the mystics say, here he is, this is the one, this is Krishna. Krishna's too. Bhagavan Swayam. I know that won't satisfy everybody, but it's, 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 uh, there's some um, way of, of speaking about it. In our um, world today, um, we're not really citing from the scriptures who people don't believe in, but then again, our argument begins with an argument that is there in the scriptures, that consciousness is different from matter. Hmm? And consciousness is neti, neti, neti. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. Again, it's not a thing at all. Hmm? You follow? Question, comment? Yes. So the mystic, you were saying that there's this mystic and he has an experience of 
his consciousness, his thinking, feeling, and willing is allowing him to experience something beyond manipulation of the brain. All right, you're saying this, but I can take your mystic into my right. into my laboratory, and I can uh, do a one floor lobotomy nest on him. And, uh, <laughs> Where, where's this experience now? Right. So my matter, my science, is more powerful. Show me it isn't. Oh, well, you're going to have your God from your scripture jump out of the pillar at me. I mean, mm -hmm. so that's, that's my argument from, this, from the materialist viewpoint. Right. Well, I think that in Vedanta there's a given that there's a correlation between mind states, experience, and the brain which is the big finding of you know, neurology, that, the, uh, that there's a course correlation between brain and mind. But correlation and causation are two different things. Because there's a correlation between brain, mind and brain doesn't mean that brain caused mind. Hmm? That doesn't follow logically. And so um, uh, we say, in theory, that consciousness is not reducible to matter, and it's also individual. We didn't go into that, but there's an argument for that. And that it will express itself in this plane, in the natural world, relative to the vehicle that it's in. Hmm? That's what we say, right? That's why we say, well, when you get a human life, consciousness is coming to the fore, that much more, and philosophizing, and, and, and so on and so forth, because it has a vehicle that's suitable to express itself in a certain way. And how it got that vehicle, then that's, you know, karma and all, in, uh, and all such uh, uh, other aspects of the philosophy. But the basic point is that, that relative to the vehicle it's in, consciousness will be facilitated in terms of expressing itself in this plane in relation to the natural world. So if you change the vehicle, yeah, it's not going to express itself in the same way. But to say that you've done away with, it, with consciousness by by uh, taking uh, uh, away somebody's brain or something, for example, it's like saying, well, I unturn the... See? Unscrew that. See, there's no more electricity. I unscrew the bulb. There's no more electricity. It means you've taken away the facility for that to manifest in, a, in the way that it has been here, but it's, nobody thinks that because you unscrewed a bulb, there's no more electricity. Hmm? So that's basically... Our, how we would reply to something like that. Hmm? We, already, we already acknowledge that, yes, if you, if you uh, 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 adjust the body in a certain way and so the consciousness is only going to express itself uh, in, a, in a limited or in a, or in a greater capacity. Hmm? Um, but to say that you've you've done away with the, 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 the sadhu's experience of himself, that's another thing. You've done away with his capacity to express it through that particular vehicle. Just like, well, it's the same theory. Well, when he dies, you say, well, he died, where is he now? That's basically what you're saying. Well, he died, where is he now? Where is his consciousness? I took out his brain, where is his consciousness? He died, the body's not here, so his consciousness is dependent upon the body. That's, a, that's the same argument that you're making, although it sounds more sophisticated and, and reasonable. It's actually the same argument, but it has, has, has no... no uh, uh, it, it, it's not a very good argument. Mm -hmm. The theory is that consciousness is not biological, so with biological death, 
that has nothing to do with consciousness. When consciousness expresses itself in the biological and natural world, then it will need a suitable vehicle uh, to, do, to do so. If you take away the vehicle, uh, then you haven't taken, done away with it. Hmm? You still have not, you, you still have not dealt with all the arguments of how it, you, it, it just because now that entity is not experiencing from your perception hmm, in the same way. Of course it's not experiencing the same thing. It's in a different situation. <laughs> it's having a different experience. It's no longer tied to this body. Hmm? Something like that. You had a question? Well, I think that you want to argue that the, the capacity to conjecture is what we're, we're talking about. What is the nature of the capacity to make a conjecture in the first place? What is the nature of the capacity to make a conjecture? Does matter make conjectures? Or does consciousness make conjectures? Hmm? If we say, well, consciousness is making the conjecture, then we go into this argument. What's the difference between consciousness... And, and matter hmm? is con- is matter making a conjecture, or is consciousness making a, a a conjecture, whether it be about the natural world or about itself? Hmm? It's making a conjecture about the nature of itself. But let's say, oh, the soul—that's just a conjecture, right? You're making a conjecture that there's a soul. No, I'm not making a je- conjecture that there's a soul. And in one sense, I'm saying. You have consciousness, I have consciousness. I'm defining it one way, you're defining it in another way. You're defining it consciousness, whether you know it or not. Perhaps if you're a materialist, you're defining consciousness as being something that's, a, that's, that's just part of the natural world. And there's no overarching meaning to anything or any value hmm? to anything. Nothing has any real meaning. Hmm? Um, there's just a random thing called experience that's just part of nature. That's a conjecture on the part of consciousness about itself, a very kind of uh, unflattering uh, one. And then there consci- there's consciousness conjecturing about itself and, and defining itself differently. Hmm? So we're not positing something that's not there. Everyone has consciousness. We're just, just thinking about there's different ways to, to conjecture about it. But consciousness is doing the conjecturing. Hmm? So let's talk about you know, the importance of consciousness, the primal and foundational nature of consciousness. Hmm? And it, it, then, then you start to make your, your argument from there. Hmm? That's just a conjecture. What's a conjecture? Just a conjecture. What is a conjecture? What is the capacity to con- conjecture? Does, that have a, does, 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 does this floor have a capacity to make a conjecture? Does the brain have a capacity to make a conjecture? What's the difference between the brain and the floor? What's the difference between the, you know, the, what bounces around in the brain and what bounces around on the pool table? Hmm? There's no difference. The basic makeup of matter is non-experiential. Hmm? To think that experience comes out of that 
It's just like, what are you talking about? Hmm? So, is it, is it, you're just making a conjecture. Yes, I make conjectures. So do you. What are we? Hmm? That's fascinating. Hmm? Um, we have the capacity to make a conjecture. Um, and so then you, if you play that out, as I say, you come to the conclusion is that this conjecturing capacity is supernatural. It's not biological. Hmm? Now, if you got that far, you, 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 you said there's something that exists outside of the biological you know, complex, and it's you. Hmm? Now, to believe in God from there, okay, don't believe in God. Just believe there's consciousness that exists, independent of, 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 of the natural world and the biological world. Hmm? Go there for a while and be, and love to be. And then after a while, we come and come and be susceptible to the argument of, of being to love, existing to love. It's a development of that idea. So if you've got a problem with God, then just think, just think you are God. The capacity to conjecture is divine. Hmm? It's not a biological function. Hmm? And then you are of that nature. Hmm? This is a basic beginning Upanishadic argument that, that it's made. If anything in the world that resembles God, it's you. Consciousness. It's different than all things. Hmm? It's you. And so, you know, that, why? You say, well, you, you, it's just a conjecture that you are matter. That's just a conjecture. You're just making a conjecture that you're, you as a unit of, with the capacity to conjecture is some kind of a mechanical or biological function. That certainly can't be demonstrated. You understand? <laughs> yeah. A couple of points. The first point is about the word biology, yeah. which is the science of life. And that's already misnomer, because we're not analyzing it's not a science of life, it's a science of the It appears to me that uh, it's very good to have solid, uh, reasonable arguments to talk to people who have, you know, doubts or bugs, you know, or skeptic or atheistic. Um, but you cannot tell somebody what your dream is if somebody's never had a dream. In other words, you can you cannot talk to somebody about what you dreamt last night for a person who's never had a dream. Which means that if a person has never had an experience, it's never going to be convinced of what you're saying is true. You know, in other words, your your argumentation can be very good to lead somebody toward wanting to experience experience. If the person feels like maybe your arguments are solid enough that uh, yeah, say, well, let me try that. But like you're talking about the mystics, the mystics can only be believed when somebody assumes that, yes, there is possibility that these experiences are real. So the point I'm making is that we can talk until we get blue in the face, but unless the person really decides to actually experience by doing something about it. Yeah, your talking should lead him to or her to do something that would afford experience. That's the value of the talking. 
it would lead people to to do so, be open to doing something that might afford them experience. But again, what we're talking about is the fact that we all have the capacity to experience. We are units of experiencing capacity. And what does that mean? That's not foreign to anyone. Hmm? Everyone is having, making conjectures. <laughs> Uh, so, it, what what is the meaning of that? What is the significance of that? That is very profound. Yes, just to... Well, when you started talking about conjectures, <laughs> I started thinking about what is a conjecture? And a conjecture is some kind of um, mental um, prediction, let's say, or, or an understanding of reality. And nowadays, people, they, we've got these computers that make quote, computer models, uh, which are a kind of Yeah, you can say, but they have no feeling. They have, in that sense, that that's another aspect of consciousness. They, they have no feeling. They cannot feel what is red, what is blue. So we already addressed that in the sense that the brain could func- <laughs> carries out many functions that we do every day that that doesn't require consciousness. Hmm? But the brain doesn't feel red. Hmm? You know, you know the argument of Mary's room. There was a, was a thought argument. Mary was put in a room and she was colorblind, and so she and she was kept in this room, and she learned everything about color. Everything that there, physically there is, to, but what this light refract 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 refracted this way with so many photons is red, and this one is blue, and everything. But she never experienced red or blue. Or green or purple, hmm? everything was uh, black and white. So, but she knew everything physically there is about red. Then one day she got out of the room and saw a red rose. The point being, and she experienced red. The point is that she knew everything physically about the experience of red, hmm? but it didn't afford her the experience of red. So she got new knowledge that's independent of the physical. Hmm? You understand? She, she had the capacity to experience something about being that, that transcended the physical. She knew everything about the physical nature of color, hmm? but it didn't afford her the experience. The experience was extra knowledge. So they call this qualia. Hmm? Consciousness has the capacity to experience, to feel things, pain, hmm? happiness, and so forth. And the the, the computer doesn't have that capacity. Hmm? And this qualia, you see, this is this is this is like this. This says there's an experience. They're trying to figure out what in the brain causes the experience. And, but beyond the, even if you could find what causes the experience, there's still an experiencer of the experience. <laughs> kind of, so you, it's uh, 
Quality is like subjective, but it's even that's not quite getting at the heart of what we say consciousness is. It's something that consciousness does. Hmm? Also, what you should say, we agree with the materialists who say that self is an illusion in there. Hmm? They may show how you might dissolve this self. We say that that material sense of self is a com- is a composite. The ego is just a made-up thing, hmm? made up. And so we agree with them. Yep, destroy it. But you haven't done away with experiential existence by doing that. Another question? But the scientists will say, well, I can make her see Greek. I will take my little probes and stick them in the brain, and where she saw red, now she sees Greek. Yeah. So I'm controlling her consciousness. Well, there are physical correlates, as I said, for experience, but the physical correlates, (coughs) no matter how you add them up, don't translate into why she's having the experience of green. Why, why, and what is that? They have no idea what, it's called the hard problem of consciousness. There are soft problems that are easy to solve, but why is there an experience in there at all? How does that work? There's no, experience, you see, it's a very different thing. You can cause someone to have a particular experience by a certain arrangement hmm? rather than another one. But why there's any experience means it's hard to fit in the head, but what is experience? Hmm? Out of something, all these things, connectors have no experience. Are you going to connect them in a certain way that, that, that they start, an experiencing thing starts to happen? Hmm? Something will happen, certain light will come, and this and that, and so on and so forth. But that it's experienced, that's another thing. Yes? So, Guruji, you've answered my other questions already. But now I'm wondering, does the Shastra say anything between a difference in consciousness level between those with material bodies and those with subtle bodies? Because it seems like you start from the... um, the animals with lower consciousness mm-hmm. and then you get up to the human level. But we're still constrained in this material body. Mm-hmm. And the material body's got all these limitations. But does it mention how those in the subtle bodies will have more consciousness or greater consciousness? Well, uh, the, the, the in spiritual bodies? Yeah. Uh-huh. From that range from material uh-huh. to subtle to... Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I think that there's yeah, there's acquaintance with the subtle realm called mind. You know, the whole idea of heaven and the gods and the goddesses is all very on um, the mind stuff. Just like in the mind, there's all in dreams, there's all kind of things that happen, right? Like Prabhupada would say, you can see gold and you can see a mountain, but you can't have a gold mountain. But in your dream, you can have a gold mountain. Hmm? So in mind, there's so many we call we call like mind stuff. There's so many possibilities worlds within mind and so forth. Hmm? And so when you're speaking of consciousness, more consciousness, you're talking about more awareness. That's not really, that's something that consciousness has. It has a capacity to perceive and so forth. But when we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about the very fact that there is something experiential, an experiential existence itself. Its capacity to perceive and be aware of different things will be relative to the vehicle that it's in. So you could have you could be in a subtle body and be aware of things that people in a physical body might not be as uh, acquainted with or, or aware of. Uh, 
but what we're really interested in, of course, is, is again, pursuing the loving component of consciousness. Hmm? That's what we would say would be more con- to be more conscious, not just to be more aware, to be less aware. They don't even know that Krishna is God. How aware are they? Hmm? As far as awa- you know, people think, consciousness means awareness, attentiveness. In a sense, that's an aspect of consciousness. Hmm? So we're interested in that the, the loving aspect or element of consciousness is, uh, which is its purpose, what it is for, is, is fulfilled. And in that, there's, there's a kind of a, some bit, a kind of an unknowing knowing. Hmm? It's very complex topics. <laughs> I did not do the greatest job of trying to explain all these things, but uh, some idea, uh, perhaps, of how to, how to think about these, how, how a Krishna's Kambaraj might think about them in our present time and try to make the case for, for Krishna. Hmm? All right, so it's nice to be with you again. Was, you have a question? Well, I was One more? My, hu- my husband was talking about how he read about people with near-death experiences and how uh-huh. they go, even one of the sannyasis that did the Japa retreat said he had one, and he, and he left his body, and, and they go into this white light. They, mm-hmm. You know what, like, what's going on there? Well, there are, first of all, the near-death experiences—they're interesting and uh, and they're 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 compelling in in some respects. Hmm? A dead brain, uh, but experience goes on. Um, and there have been some people who were very much um, um, indoctrinated into thinking about life in a physical sense, in physicalists, naturalists, who uh, changed their position. On the basis of their uh, near-death experiences, There's a couple of couple of doctors. There's one in Holland that wrote a, a Dutch man wrote a famous book on. It. I have a copy of it actually. It was quite uh, a big seller in Europe and so forth. But like anything, hmm, there's always ways to find fault. Krishna says, "I make your faith strong. If you want to be whatever, if you want to not believe in me, I can make your faith strong." Hmm? Just like that, people go and find you know. There's ways to look at Prabhupada and you could find all kinds of faults in him, you know, and say, why should I listen to him, you know. Um, uh, so uh, anybody can do that with anything. But they are, there are some compelling arguments. But one thing about near-death experience is that, is that what it involves in, in, in one sense is that if the brain stops and experience goes on, mind is going on, right? And mind, from, in our, from our perspective, is subtle matter. So the mind... So there are different experiences. There are some common. There's some common ground in near-death experiences, but there are also different experiences. Hmm? Minds are different. Hmm? They're carrying their mind with them. Hmm? So it's not, a, from our perspective, a transcendent experience. It's a non-physical experience. It's a psych experience on the psychic realm, hmm? in like the dream state or you know mind state and so forth. So there may be something common, you know, in general, uh, to that. I, I don't know if they're all, you know, the same, but there may be something common to it, and there are maybe, then there are, I know, differences as well. So that's as much as I've really kind of like thought about it. Uh, I haven't like really studied the the uh, the, the, the research on it. Uh, I have this guy's book, but I only read a few couple of chapters, uh, 
and it didn't go into the details of all these people and you know in these conditions they all experienced they saw a white light or whatever it was or a tunnel and the light at the end or uh, they meet their friends they do all kind of things so we, we, all that kind of from the Bhagavad point of view fits into oh they're in a subtle plane like astral traveling or whatever and there's a lot of different possibilities uh, going on there and a lot of common ground too so they may report as to the common ground of their experience but from our perspective it's not a wholly transcendent experience it does say that consciousness and mind are different from brain we're happy with that And then it's changed, yeah. Yeah, well, I think they have experienced that, that, that there's more to them than, you know, what they thought they were, and what they thought they were, they were was at odds with others in one way or another, and so they came to some, you know, basic sense that there's a higher... Uh, common ground that we have that transcends our American and Iranian, Iranian, you know, differences and so forth. Um, you recently published in the Harmonist an article by a, a doctor who's just from Lynchburg, right? Hmm. And uh, I happened to see a video of him on television just the other day uh, by chance, and, uh, and he was explaining his experience a little further than the article stated. And I was struck by the fact as I am with many, many of these experiences, is that the place they go to is a place where they meet their family. <laughs> and, 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 and he was very emotional while meeting his, this particular person and his family. And I got the impression very strongly that, that, that almost everybody who has these experiences, because they don't have knowledge of the self, is that they're working on some kind of subtle plane. They get an understanding of more than just the body, for sure. Mm-hmm. They're just in some sort of, uh, like you were saying, some sort of intermediate state. And um, near death isn't so close to death. I mean, it, it, it just isn't going to happen at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, and they come back. And now he's going around to tell people that, you know, I no longer believe the brain is everything. But what he's telling people more is like, when you die, you can be with your family. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, the family, but the family that you live with in America in Lynchburg, that's what yeah. he's Well, um, I, I, um, um, the idea is that um, pretty much that's the case. But it's said that that um, someone from there can go beyond it by Krishna's grace. Okay. It's possible. So let's say it's, let's say somebody 
somebody was a, a monist, but in order, of, course, of course, in order to attain Brahman, you have to have some bhakti, some sattviki bhakti. This is the teaching in the Bhagavatam and the Gita. So some bhakti. So if you're against bhakti, the Bhagavatam says you can't get liberated. Hmm? So at least you can't be against it. Uh, so if you go enter into Brahman, let's say someone is a is a monist, but they do some bhakti, and so you meet that person and you get inspired and as a spiritual figure in your life, and what you picked up on was the bhakti that he talked about, but you didn't understand Shuddha bhakti. Hmm? You understood something about bhakti to get liberation and so forth. Meanwhile, that that guru passes on. Let's say he enters into Brahman. Hmm? Meanwhile, you 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 find uh, you run into a Shuddha bhakta, hmm? a group of, of of devotees practicing pure devotion. So you become inspired by that, and then they teach you about bhakti. Hmm? What is Shuddha bhakti? What is mixed bhakti? And so on and so forth. And then you, you, as your conception is refined, you start to get an understanding of where it was that that guru who inspired you went. Hmm? What was the measure of the bhakti and the equation of his, her spiritual practice and so forth. And you realize this person was meaningful, helped me in my life. Hmm? Inspired me for bhakti, actually, but now my understanding of bhakti has been refined and honed and and I'm a follower of Rupa Goswami and the, the bhakti of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, hmm. Shuddha Bhakti. Uh, but still, and the devotees are always criticizing the impersonals, but I like that one because that one helped me. Hmm. And so one thinks like that. I, I, and then <coughs> Krishna becomes uh, then drawn to that person in the Brahma Jyoti and takes him to Vaikuntha. <laughs> All right, we'll stop there.